Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are we doing today? Good. It's good to see you guys. Thank you for um, braving the weather to come join us this morning. Not that bad. Dallas said it wasn't that bad. Who says it was that bad? Who had to walk here? Who had to slog here? Yeah? Okay. So, some say it wasn't that bad. Some say it was a deluge. So, get an umbrella? What are you, a Californian? I'm just kidding. I'm a Californian. Me too. This is just in California, and I thought to myself, is it always this hot here? Um, cool. Well, just introduce myself if you don't know me. My name is Matt Abed. I'm one of the serving pastors here, and um, it's my privilege today to serve the church by extending to you guys what I got to study this week in Scripture. Um, I'm going to pray, but first I want to stop you guys from turning to the passage. So if you've turned to the passage, that's totally cool. Just don't glance at it quite yet. Um, Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Your mercies are made new today. I woke up having a pretty crummy morning. Um, I was just super sad about some stuff that I know about going going on in, in my life and in the lives of people that I love, and I felt just sad and almost hopeless. But when I gathered here with my brothers and sisters and my friends and I prayed to you and I got into your word a little bit, you really truly have awakened joy in my heart, which is a prayer that my sister prayed over me this morning. And like, this is how you work. You're so kind and you're so good. And uh, I trust you with everything and we trust you with this morning. Please speak through me by your grace and in your power. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go through 31. But before you turn there, you guys are good. You guys like going to the passage. Um, I just want to say that Mark, his gospel was the first one historically written. And we are a little bit spoiled by our biblical technology and for some of us our biblical familiarity that we miss out on some of the intended order of, of events that Mark writes. Now, when we, when we turn to this passage, some of our biblical translations have headers at the top. I would encourage you to try to ignore that. I know that that's hard. If I say don't think of an elephant, everybody thinks of elephants and if I tell you to try not to look at the passage header, it's going to make you want to. But I'm going to ask that you try not to. And if you're somewhat familiar with the passage, I would ask that you try not to think ahead. Um, it's important that we read this passage in the way that Mark wrote it, because he very intentionally only um, listed the details he wanted to at the point where he wanted to list them. So now you can turn to Mark chapter 10, starting in verses 17, and we're going to read through 31. Um, we are continuing a sermon series called Discipleship, Following Jesus to the Cross. This portion of the book of Mark is when Jesus is on his way to the cross. He is decided and purposed in his heart to go to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and rise on the third day. He's become more deliberate to explain to his disciples that this is physically and seriously going to happen. 
Now, on I the way... Understand. Oh, he I'm did... To... I don't know what he's talking about, y'all. Um, well, let me just turn that off. These disciples, as they're walking with Jesus toward the cross, they do not want to believe that Jesus is speaking in literal terms. And so he's taken this opportunity to clarify to them what it means to follow him, where that will take them, what they'll see in his life, and then what he's going to expect out of them. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus's economy, what it means for our pocketbooks, what it means for our resource use when we are following Jesus as disciples. Before I unpack that, I want to again bring out this duality that exists in the book of Mark. There are two types of people that follow Jesus, the multitude and the disciples. The multitude physically follows Jesus, and they glean from him his miraculous works. He gives them food sometimes, he heals their sick. They're kind of there just for the spectacle, but the disciples follow Jesus' teachings in heart and in action. They're physically in his midst, and they're also united to him in the pursuit of his gospel. So this message is about what a disciple of Jesus, rather than the multitude following Jesus, what the disciple has to expect, what Jesus is calling on their pocketbooks, on their wealth, on their economy, on their resource. I'm going to read just the first two verses of our passage this morning, and we'll unpack it a little bit at a time. Verse 17 says, And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Pause. You may know that where this story is going, you may not, but just stick with me just for those two verses. There's a lot to unpack there. Again, Mark has written this book, and at some point in history, people were reading this story from Paul for the first, or excuse me, from Mark for the first time ever. All we get so far is that Jesus is setting out on his journey. Where is he going? He's on his way to Jerusalem. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, pause. What do we know about this guy? What do we know about his social stature? What do we know about his class? What do we know about his financial security? What do we know about his job? Nothing. In fact, Mark's literal writing is one came up to him. So from that, we don't even have his, uh, his sex, his gender, until uh, it says that he knelt before him and asked him. So one ran up and knelt before him and asked him. Just in those actions alone, though, we get a lot of understanding about this man's character. About this man's character. Mark's book is a dynamic book. He writes with intentional words to uh, convey action. He wants us to visualize this. This is a man running up to Jesus. What does that posture mean? Well, in, in first century Jewish culture, dignified men did not run. It was considered uh, desperate, and it was unbecoming of, you know, what, what we in Western culture would call a gentleman. I know we don't use that quite as much anymore, but it was undignified to run. 
And when somebody runs in the New Testament, it, it conveys desperation and casting aside all other concerns, all self-respect for the sake of whatever they're pursuing. There's an absurdly low number of cases where people are running in the New Testament. Absurdly low. And when you consider how often we run in our lives, like even though we're kind of lazy, we probably ran yesterday to catch a bus or a train or, or, you know, sped up in our car to try to catch that parking spot. We are very much in a hurry, but in this culture, they were not because it was considered undignified. I think the best way that I could probably explain the gravity of this is in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Now, Jesus wrote this parable, which means that the details in it are purposeful. In the parable of the prodigal son, uh, a man's young son went away and squandered all of his inheritance on crazy lifestyle, partying and stuff, but it, it seems that every day the father who was still back at home would look along the horizon and just wait and hope that his son would come back. One day his son realizes the mistake of his action and he decides that he is going to go home, but just to ask his dad for a job. And when his dad sees him yet afar off, these are Jesus' words from Jesus' narrative, he ran at him and fell upon his neck. Jesus used those words because it conveyed desperation. It conveyed depth of desire. Come back to Mark chapter 10. That's what this man does. He runs up to him. Now, we don't know anything about this one, about this man. But we gather that he's somebody who takes Jesus seriously. Now, what's the second action that he does? He knelt before him and asked him, now, kneeling is another posture of, of reverence. And in fact, there's only one other person in the book of Mark who seriously kneels before Jesus. Aside from this man, the only other person is a leper. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, he kneels before Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Doubtlessly, that leper who dealed with a physical condition that no one else could heal was desperate for Jesus' miracle. And so he knelt before him, revering Jesus, saying, I am at your service, I am at your mercy. This man does that. So what can we gather about this guy? This is somebody who's taking Jesus very seriously. He doesn't care how he looks to others. He doesn't care if he's not being dignified. He's just desperate for Jesus. And what is he desperate for? Well, He's desperate for an answer. He's going to ask him a question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pause. We're going to pause again. Good teacher. So he, he ascribes to Jesus authority over him. The, the word that we have here, teacher, the New King James Version, and the King James Version, maybe they changed it in the New King. The King James Version consistently translates that word as master rather than teacher. He's submitting himself to Jesus' instruction. We're talking about hierarchy here. Running, kneeling. I'm your disciple, you're my teacher. Tell me the answer to this. So, he's ascribing to Jesus authority. It's another, another good thing. But the, the main 
beautiful portion of, of the title that he gives to Jesus is that he calls him good teacher. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, no one is ever referred to as a good teacher. That's a, that's a unique title. But what is especially interesting is exactly the way Mark has written it. Mark wrote his book in the language of Koine Greek. And, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is something fascinating here. The word that this man uses, uses for good is a unique word, and it's agathos. Agathos. The most common word that was used for good was a word called kalos. The difference between the two of them is kalos means that it's, it is pleasant, it is goodness, consistently throughout the New Testament, our good works are described as callous good. So it's not just merely superficial, but it's, it's commonly used as good. Agathos is a unique word. It's a reserved word. John MacArthur says the difference between callous and agathos is agathos means is good nature, good to the core. The New Testament writers are intentional and when they use the word agathos and when they use the word callous. I want to give you a good example of that. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus says this, even so every good agathos tree brings forth good callous fruit. So the good fruit of a tree, which is pleasant and good in nature, has to come from a source that is actually good to the core the outspring of goodness has to come from something or someone who is good to the core. So this man, casting aside dignity and appearances, runs after Jesus. Not taking into account whatever his own social stature is, he kneels before Jesus, conveying service. And then he says, Jesus is his teacher ascribing to Jesus authority over him, freedom to instruct this man as Jesus would. And he says that you are not just a teacher, but you are a teacher who is good to the core. Now Jesus, before he answers this man, he says, why do you call me good? Now I'll be honest that before uh, all throughout my Christian life, when I've read this passage, I thought that Jesus was being persnickety here, you know, picky, like splitting hairs on semantics. But it's because of that point that this man has ascribed to Jesus this very unique word for goodness that Jesus says, I want you to think about that. Why do you call me Agathos? Why do you say that I am good to the core? Jesus is not saying that he is not good to the core. He's just saying sort of, it's interesting that you call me Agathos. Have you, have you known that only God is Agathos and no people are? Jesus is not just being persnickety here. He's setting the context to the answer of the question this man will ask. But before we get there, we have to actually see the depths of what this man is asking. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do 
to inherit in eternal life. This man was very, very purposeful in the way he worded this. What must I do? He's willing to work for it. He's willing to work for it. It's not that he's just expecting God to give him what he's asking for, but he's willing to put forth effort. He's willing to change. He's willing to step in wherever God leads him, whatever his good teacher instructs him. He's willing to do that to inherit eternal life. He doesn't say, what must I do? What good works must I do to earn eternal life? He understands that this is something that will be given to him. The good works he's asking Jesus to instruct him in are not so that way he would earn eternal life, but rather so that way God would look upon him and generously, graciously give to him what he's after. And we got to break that down too. What is he after? Eternal life. Now, today in our society, when we say eternal life, we get caught up on the eternal part. We take for granted that our existence is primarily or predominantly physical and our length of days ends the day that we physically die. So when we preach the gospel, the good news side of that is that there is life eternal, everlasting life and duration. That's not what this man would have focused on. In this man's culture, it would have been taken for, for granted. Everyone knows that eternity awaits those who die in his culture. So the weight for his is not on the eternal duration, but on the quality of that eternal life. When he says eternal life, don't think of that as a distinction between temporal life. It's a distinction between eternal death. He assumes eternity. Eternal life describes the quality of eternity this man is after. He wants to know what he must do so that way God would look on him and graciously welcome him in to eternal flourishing. And to the Jewish mind, eternal flourishing always means the presence of God. Now again, the difference between our society and theirs, our culture, when we talk about uh, eternal life versus eternal judgment, we think of the torment and judgment of hell. For this man, he would be thinking of the presence of God in eternity or the separation from God for eternity. And he's desperate to know how he might spend the eternity that he expects is coming, how he might spend that eternity in the good gracious presence of God. He is desperate for this answer. Now, Jesus gives to him an answer in verses 19, uh, and he answers in verse 20. So we're we're reading along. So uh, let's go ahead and read. We'll start in verse 18, and we'll read through 20. 18 said, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Again, we don't know anything about this guy. But what we do see here is that Jesus has given him the most basic answer. It's like if your, your teenager was asking you to teach them how to drive and you say, well, first you should probably have a set of keys. You know, he, he's giving them the most basic answer. Now, the, the on-listeners nearby, they have no idea who this man is either. 
So when Jesus gives him these basic commandments, this citing from the Ten Commandments, they might not know what sort of man this is. And maybe he's not familiar with the Ten Commandments. And Jesus gives them the basic commandments, which are do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. That's basically uh, the second half of the Ten Commandments, almost in exact order. But this is what the man says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, I want us to visualize this correctly. I don't want you to think of him crossing his arms, picking his teeth and saying, check. That's not it. Remember, this man is desperate. This is not like the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious elite that we've heard and seen throughout Mark so far. The only other person who's knelt before Jesus is a leper. This man is desperate. It's more like this. I've done all of these things. What else is missing? I know something is missing. This man is desperate for the answer. Apparently, he knows scripture. And apparently, to the best of his efforts, and probably to the uh, recognition of those around him, he seems to be upholding those. But there's still a gaping vacuum within his heart. So maybe we have an idea as to why he's running out to Jesus. Maybe he's gotten a word that there's a teacher who teaches with authority, as Mark has said early in his passage. And now this man wants to get an answer to a question that's deeper than even what he's studied in God's holy word. All these things I've done from my youth, and the implication is, what am I missing? Because I know there's more. Jesus, in the precursor to him responding to this man at all, says, there's no one agathos except for God. In that, in that qualification that Jesus gives to him is sort of a clue of where this conversation is going to lead. Now remember, Jesus is omniscient. He knows this man, and he knows where this conversation is going to go, so he sets this tone. Nobody is good to the core. Nobody is good to the core. There's nobody perfect. And in that is a slight correction of this man who is frustrated because he thinks that he's doing everything right already. And by other people's eyes, he seems to be somebody who's doing everything right already. But Jesus corrects that a little bit. You need to know, one who's come to me running and kneeling, that nobody's perfect. There's no one good to the core except for God. So that's corrective, but it's also merciful. It's also merciful because this man has, by effort and by discipline, tried to heed God's word from his youth, and still he feels like something's missing. And when Jesus says that there's no one agathos except for God, it's almost like he's saying, hey, just so you know, you're not the only one who feels this way. Everybody here has that vacuum. Everybody here is trying to the best of their ability and can't help but feel like something is missing. Deep, deep mercy Jesus shows towards this man. Let's, let's push on. Verse 21 only. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. 
Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus gives him a commandment. There's no other way around this. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Jesus commands him. Remember, this guy has submitted himself, knelt before him, calling him teacher. He's made himself Jesus' disciple. And what Jesus uses here is that authority. He says, go, sell, give to the poor, and come follow me. It's, an it's not just an instruction, it's a commandment. Jesus is using that authority that this man has given to him. It's not, well, you know, if you did this, and if you did this, and if you did this, it's a commandment. That's, that's hard and that's heavy. But before we get to that, we have to see the sequence of events as Mark tells them. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. Look, notice the kindness and the tenderness in Jesus' presentation. Look at the sequence. First, Jesus sees the man. He looks at him. He knows this man. Then Mark says that Jesus loved him. Jesus sees this man for all that he is and everything that he's ever done and all of the weaknesses he has, and Jesus loves him with a perfect, godly, self-sacrificial love, according to the word that Mark uses there. Then, at last, he says to him, Jesus proceeds to answer this man's question. The answer to the question is not without these first two things, Jesus seeing this man and Jesus loving this man. This commandment that Jesus gives is not just the harshest thing that Jesus can think of, it's out of love. It's not also not just this um, boilerplate commandment that everyone would be given. Jesus sees this man and knows him. It is for him. This man asked a deeply personal question. It would be a different story if this man came up and said, what, wasn't, what must we do to inherit eternal life? He said, good teacher, what must I do to eternal inherit life? He says that I have done all these things from my youth. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then the commandment that Jesus gives him is heavy. On, in the context of no one being good except for God, Jesus says, you lack one thing. This is what is missing. And I know because I see you and I love you. This is what is missing. Go sell all that you have. And the proceeds from that sale, give it to the poor. Jesus is kind and merciful to tell him the consequence of that immediately. I've, I've skipped over that myself in the past, so let's not miss it. You lack one thing, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. No, there's something before that. And you will have treasure in heaven. The, the reward is in there right at the, at the commandment, right at the instruction. It's merciful. Jesus is not just telling this man to blindly obey. He's telling this man what will happen if and when he sells everything that he has and give the pro gives the proceeds to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you will have eternal life. If you want the quality of your eternity to be, uh, to be vibrant, 
this is how you do it. And you will have treasure in heaven. That's the why am I telling you to do this? Because then you will have treasure in heaven. And then hear this, and come follow me. Jesus first says, come before it says following me. Yes, it's a commandment, but it's an inviting commandment. Remember, we talked about this early on, that eternal life in the mind of the Jewish person would be the presence of God, the presence of God, to be permitted into the presence of God. Jesus has already said that there's no one Agathos, but you've just called me Agathos, but there's no one Agathos except for God. And then he says, come follow me. That's Jesus saying that eternal life begins now. If you want the presence of God, Jesus says, I am God. Come, I welcome you into my presence. Now, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Punchline. For he had great many possessions. Now, if we, if we read the header and we know the story, we know that this, this man is, is a rich man. Uh, if you're familiar with this passage from the, the book of Matthew, we know that this is a rich, young man. If you're familiar with this passage from the book of Luke, you know that this is a rich, young man who is a ruler over people, which probably means he's a leader in the synagogue, the local you know, religious gathering. But for Mark, he's reserved this for the end. This is the punchline, for he had a great possessions. All we've known about this man from before is that he's willing to cast aside dignity, that he's coming before Jesus sincerely, that he's asking Jesus a very honest question and seeking a very honest answer. And here, we get the full gravity of that. How much dignity did this man set aside to run after Jesus? A lot. And if we knew that he was a rich person ahead of time, when, when we read this story, we instantly know, like, oh, so a rich man comes to Jesus and he says, what am I lacking? Instantly, we're gonna, probably has something to do with his money. Maybe he's a dishonest man. I don't know. But Mark reserves this for the end because it is the punchline. Now, what, what happens to this guy? Disheartened by the saying, and that means that like a fog came over his face. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We don't know what ends up happening. We don't know if he ends up giving, selling all of his things and giving the proceeds to the poor and then follows Jesus. We don't know if he doesn't do that now and then sometime later after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection becomes a believer. Much like many people in scripture and the gospel narratives, he kind of comes and goes without an epilogue. We don't know what happens to him. I think the reason that the Holy Spirit has left that epilogue out of here is because the Holy Spirit doesn't think that is beneficial to us. Scripture is written for believers, for us. Not so that way we can gather and judge this man for whether or not he did the right thing, but so that way we ourselves can ask the right questions unto God. This man asked Jesus a very hard question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm doing all of these things. Something is missing. 
We need to be asking God that. We need to in, in, in be emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit to be willing to ask that and have honest ears in order to listen what God's going to say. But our passage isn't done. We're pushing through. Verses 23 and 24. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus appears to be grieved at how his commandment has affected this man. How does Jesus feel towards this man? Is this man a hypocrite that Jesus is being hard to? Sometimes Jesus does that. No. This is a desperate man, a sincere man, and Jesus looks at him and loves him. And when this commandment saddens this man, it saddens Jesus, it grieves Jesus. And he says that it's, it's, it's very difficult for those who are wealthy, for those who have resource to enter into the kingdom of God. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, commentators say that the camel is the largest animal that uh, the people of ancient Palestine could imagine. You know, we, we, think, we can think of bigger animals now. We have uh, various zoological advancements. But they could picture a camel, and the eye of a needle is probably the smallest entry point that they can think of. And so Jesus is swinging for the fences. He's thinking of the largest animal that they can understand and the smallest entry point that they can understand, and he's throwing them together. He's very vividly and very intentionally saying, it is so hard. And he's trying to incite within them the response that he gets. Before we get to the response, though, we have to um, address this uh, incorrect uh, theory and claim that has been circling around Christendom for a little while now. Some people say that the eye of a needle is, was traveling jargon for uh, a small gateway into, in through a city wall, and that a common struggle that these people would understand is that one of the hardest things is getting a camel through one of those things. Am I right? Have you ever been there? It's very difficult. And some people have gone even further and go, the camel had to get down on its knees and wriggle through. Um, I don't know where that came from, but it's historically not verified. It's not accurate. But Jesus is not saying it's almost as hard uh, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven as it is to get through one of those gates. Am I right? That's not what he's saying. He is making a hyperbolic um, simile here to incite within them this question, then who can be saved? In verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. That's why he uses this simile, because it's impossible. It's not difficult and obnoxious to get a camel through a city gate. It's impossible to get a camel through the literal eye of a needle, but with God, for all things are possible with God. Twice now in this passage, Mark has said that Jesus' words to this man has taken his listeners by surprise. In verse 24, it says, and his disciples were amazed. And in verse 26, which we just skipped, Mark says they were exceedingly astonished. Why is that? Now, in our culture, we, we have trouble sometimes trusting the wealthy. But in this culture, they usually saw wealth as a sign of God's approval. That if someone was wealthy, if someone had a lot of possessions and treasure and security, 
and wasn't just surviving, but thriving, that it must mean that God looks at them with great, pre- with great pleasure and great approval. So when Jesus says, the wealthy have a hard time entering the kingdom of God, it's very confusing to them. I thought the wealthy were already in the kingdom of God. Now that may sound silly and superstitious for us, but I have to say that even even in modern Christianity and modern churches today, we have these same sort of inclinations. When we see somebody who has children who stay with the Lord or or end up becoming successful, or when we see people in the church who have uh, prosperous investments, or we see people in the church who don't have financial struggles and financial desperation, we assume that they're being good stewards and then God is honoring their wisdom, and that's not fair. It's not fair and it's not accurate. Jesus is saying very literally here that prosperity does not, does not guarantee God's approval. And probably more importantly for us, God's approval doesn't guarantee prosperity. For some reason or another, according to Jesus, those things are separate. Now, everybody who's listening to Jesus, his disciples, that's, the, that's who really Jesus is trying to address here. They're floored. They don't know where to go from here. They don't know what to say. So we can depend on Peter to say something. Verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers and sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the widespread answer to the personal question that the rich man asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, for the people who have given up relationships and property and security for him, he will give that back to them. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, it, it's important that we understand here that um, Peter is not just speaking out of his ear, He's also not just trying to uh, promote himself. He's trying to figure this out. He's listened to Jesus' instruction. He himself, like that man, has submitted himself to Jesus' authority, and he's going through what Jesus has just told this man to inherit eternal life. And Peter is saying, hey, we've done that. We've given up businesses to follow you. I've given up my fishing boat to follow you. These guys, they've given up their dad's fishing boat to follow you. I've left my wife at home to follow you. These are, these are the things that the apostles had given up. And Jesus kind of just says, yeah, you have. But he says that when you give up something for the Lord to answer his calling, that he'll give greater back to you, a hundred times more. And there's two contexts in which Jesus will return these things to his people. One is... In this time, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this life. Jesus is not just saying, give up everything you have in an eternity. I'm giving you some cool stuff, man. In this time, in this life, 
Now, some of the people who are listening to this teaching that Jesus is saying here, they will very seriously experience this in their lifetime. In uh, Acts chapter 4, there are people who are probably here in this passage who are still serving as Jesus's church, and they start selling all of their things and giving the proceeds to the apostles, and the apostles are distributing them to the needy. And in return, they go to house churches at each other's places. They eat what they called agape feasts together. They made sure everybody had food. Uh, The churches in Macedonia and uh, at large throughout the land were giving money to support Jerusalem in their famine. They very seriously in that life experienced that. But I'll I'll say that 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 promise exists even now. I I know people in, in the church who've had strains on their family relationships because they've chosen to follow Jesus and now they don't talk to their two brothers or two sisters or to their two parents. And then by their admission, they would say to me that I have 30 close brothers in the church, 30 close sisters in the church. I have four or five, six mother figures, father figures. God gives us more. I think of this missionary that I really respect. His name is Jamie Winship, and he, he, several times in his life, he and his wife Donna packed up their kids and moved to dangerous places, uh, leaving behind security of their homes here in the U.S. to go to the Middle East to very unstable places. And he said that one time when he was back stateside, God told him to lead a Bible study in a McDonald's. Long story, I'll tell you about it another time. But in any case, somebody who started attending his Bible study, their marriage was on the rocks, and he... Um, asked Jamie to kind of help him grow in the Lord to see where, what was going, going wrong in his life and in his marriage. God saved this man's marriage, and as a thank you to Jamie, this guy said, I want you and your wife to drive around the city, find any house you want to, that whether it's on market or off market, and tell me which one it is, and I'm gonna buy it for you and bought him a house. It's a true story. And I, I, I can say for, for myself that there, there have been things that I've, I've laid down in, in my pursuit of the calling that God's put on my life. I've, I, I've left my home in California. That's a really deep community for me. My, my two brothers and my two sister-in-laws are there. But look at all the brothers and sisters I have in this room. It's very touching to me. This is, however, important that we remember. Mark has included this passage in here to tell us that the sacrifices that we make to the Lord are not just relational, not just material, but they're also sometimes financial. That is a category. The gospel touches here, too, our pocketbooks. It does. And that's why this is included here. But I can also say that for myself, by God's grace, I tithe to this church, but this church also pays me much more than I tithe. And the the deacons have helped my family when we've been in financial difficulties. When the rubber meets the road, God calls us to sacrifice, to give to him, but he always gives back so much more. Always gives back so much more. God will never outgive us. So this this brings up a question that you may be asking yourself. Is Jesus asking us to sell everything that we own 
to give the proceeds of that to the poor and go live an itinerant life, a homeless life, serving his purposes throughout the world? And I'm going to say the simple answer to that is no. The simple answer to that is no. This was a very personal answer that Jesus gave to a specific person who asked a very personal question. Historically, we can see that Christians throughout the ages have had riches, have had possessions, and in some cases, Jesus has used those riches to benefit his kingdom. He's used those houses to install house churches that still happens today. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 19, I'm going to turn there. You're welcome to as well. This was our passage this morning in prayer. Verses 17 through 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, talking about the rich in the church, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see how that lines up with this passage? The principle that Jesus told to this man is eternally true. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Although Jesus is not calling all of us to sell everything that we have, give the proceeds to the poor, and then live an itinerant life to serve his purposes in the world, although he's not calling all of us to do that, this passage is here because he calls some of us to do that. He calls some of us to to sacrifice our riches if they obstruct his relationship with us. Um, this is a hard word, but it's not mine, so don't get mad at me. Uh, New Testament scholar and professor Robert H. Gundry says this. You ready? This is tough. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Did you catch that one more time? That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. That means if it's like, whew, I don't have to give my money to God, that sounds good, then God is probably telling you, you, you need to learn how to worship me with your money. Now, in, in our culture, we could be so hyper-capitalist that we have this sort of hands-off-my-money approach to everything. We have this, what's mine is mine. And that's why it gets awkward when a friend asks to borrow money, and it's like, whoa, that's not kind of the kind of relationship I thought that we had here. That's why we have prenuptial agreements. This is why discussing money makes us uncomfortable, and that's fine. If discussing money makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe friends shouldn't borrow money from each other. Maybe that's not good manners. That's fine. But the point is this. We can't have a hands-off-my-money policy in our relationship with Jesus. He's not interested in a prenuptial agreement. The gospel touches our pocketbooks, too. That's a category that we have to avail to Jesus. If I say to Jesus, what's mine is mine, then my life's lot is occupied with things that belong to me, and there's less space for me to receive what Jesus wants to share with me. And what Jesus wants to share with me is greater than the things that were mine. Think about those people that we've just talked about throughout the church age, who've given and received, given and received. Think of Abraham, who left the security of his father's home to be a nomad, but then in return, God gave his inheritance an entire nation. If we 
hoard what is ours. There's no room for what is his, and what is his is greater. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like somebody who found a great treasure in a field and sold everything that he may buy that field. It's an exchange, but it's not a one-to-one comparison. We give little, we receive much. So I encourage all of us to ask bravely and humbly and desperately the same question that this man asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You search the scriptures, you see what a, the behavior that a Christian should exhibit, and you say to yourself, all these things I've done, I know something is missing. I guarantee you that all of us, myself included, because there's no one agathos except for God, all of us have a pet obstruction that gets between us. And when we say eternal life, we're not talking about salvation. You may be a Christian today with an obstruction. I will say that you are a Christian today with an obstruction between you and the Lord. Eternal life is about uninhibited relationship and presence with God. And when we ask that question, the answer that Jesus gives us, no matter how sincere we are, is probably going to make us sorrowful because it's going to be a pet obstruction. All the ones that stick around are pet obstructions. It could be a relationship, it could be a career path, it could be an emphasis in our lives, it could be something financial, who knows? Only Jesus does, but if we're brave enough to ask Jesus the question, he will look upon us. He will know who you are. He will love you. He will care about you. But he will say, and his commandment won't be without love, and here's a major important point, His love is not without commandment. Because he cares about us, he doesn't want those pet obstructions robbing us of the good things that he has for us. Because God is willing to give us eternal life, uninhibited relationship with him, into his presence, we must give up anything that stands in the way of that, no matter how valuable it seems to us in this life. Because he wants to give better things to us in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. If you're not a Christian today, please don't be mistaken. No one here is asking for your money, but what I'm encouraging you to do is to ask yourself, why are you here? I mean, I'm glad that you're here. You're probably here sincerely. You're probably seeking Jesus, just like this man did. And I would encourage you, to to dig deep in the places where you think to yourself, I've tried so hard, I've done everything I can since I was a kid, but something is still missing, to ask Jesus the hard question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's gotta be something more than this that I've wrought for myself to the best of my abilities. And Jesus says there is. And nobody here is is a judge, because there's no one good to the core except for God. Know up front that Jesus will will answer our questions when we ask him to convict us of our sin, but also know up front that there's usually sacrifice involved for the the new believer, as well as those of us who've been walking with the Lord for years. There's sacrifice involved. But you can be guaranteed that he'll always give to us good in return because he is good. He's good to the core, and he's the only one. He's the only place where we'll find that level of goodness. Let's pray. 
Jesus, oh man. Peter once said, hey, where, where else can we go? You alone have the answers to, to life and salvation and godliness. We're all looking for deep goodness, agathos, goodness, goodness to the core. For all of us, there have been things in our life that we've set on a pedestal and we've worked so hard to attain those things, to achieve those things, and we've found that they're merely pleasant, but not good to the core, and they do not satisfy. There's only one who is good to the core, and that's you. And by your grace, you've availed yourself to us. You've availed to us your resources. But there's sacrifice first. We have to empty the space and the lot that you're trying to fill with your good things. Um, it could be non-financial, but it could be financial. As our pastor Justin often says, this passage means more than what it's saying, but it doesn't mean less. And this categorically introduces us to the fact that we need to worship you with our finances. And sometimes our finances obstruct our relationship with you because we want to have a hands-off my money and what's mine is mine approach even in your in our relationships but whatever these things are i pray that in our own time that you would challenge every believer here every brother and sister here to ask you what must i do to inherit eternal life all these things i've tried since i was a youth all these things I've tried this month, all these things I've tried this week, I know something's missing, what's missing? Please look at us, please see us, please love us, and please say to us, your words that are not without love and your love which is not without commandment. In Jesus' name, amen.